Um, all right, we're looking at essential characteristics of a biblical church, and um, what we're doing on Sunday night is we are looking through the and explaining, teaching through the qualifications of pastors, elders, overseers, that office that's laid out in, in the book of Titus. So if you want to look there with me, Titus chapter 1. This morning I preached through verse 5 on the directive that Paul gives Titus. You can go on through, that's fine, Wes. Um, and then he explains what type of elders should be appointed in these towns. Not sure if that's going to... You know what? Is that number three? Okay, don't worry about it. We don't need technology. Um, what type of person are you looking for as an elder? And this is a question a lot, of, a lot of churches ask. What type of person are we looking for as a pastor? Do you want somebody to come in and wow you? Do you want somebody who is going to attract the crowds? Do you want somebody who's older, younger, all of these things? And the problem is uh, a lot of... Um, perhaps there are many church uh, pulpit committees who don't look at the qualifications and are primarily focused on the biblical qualifications of a pastor. And so we worked through some of them. I put a, uh, a graph up there last week. We'll read through and I'll just, we'll just read through and go phrase by phrase down through these. This is why I left you in Crete, verse 5, so that you may put what remained into order organizing the believers that were left and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What should these elders look like? As we said this morning, is that something where we say, okay, we're going to take the five oldest people in the congregation? No. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. As we said last week, the most remarkable thing about these qualifications is that they are totally unremarkable. There's nothing in here about how you have to have a, you know, a, a, a Superman's cape. You don't have to be of certain age. You don't have to have certain seminary degrees. You don't have to have all these, these things that many people would see as, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to be super outgoing. All of these different um, characteristics that some people would look for in a pastor, and perhaps you've looked at somebody and said, that person would make a good pastor because of maybe some personality traits. These are moral qualifications, These are specific ways that people lead and normally fall short in their leadership and they need to serve in these capacities. Several notes. These are all moral qualifications. So first of all, the person who is recognized as a pastor is recognized and called to be a pastor to be, not to do, primarily. It's primarily a job of someone who is something, not someone who's doing something. None of these qualities are absolute. In other words, just because you're not a violent person by, you know, in your qualities that you're not violent doesn't mean that you haven't done one thing in your life that was violent. It is a character trait. These are, gen- these are consistent biblical patterns, but all of these qualifications are non-negotiable. You can't score 90% on the test and be okay. 
They're all non-negotiable. Last week, we looked at being above reproach, meaning that if you were to say something about a person that was not true or that was um, that, that accusations would not stick to that person because they're consistent Christian life, not perfect, but living a consistent Christian life. Husband of one wife, meaning that if he's single, he honors Christ with his body, and if he's married, he is true to his wife. A one-woman man is literally the way that it's written. The faithfulness of a man to his wife, the faithfulness of purity of a single person, it goes so much farther beyond married or divorced. It's the consistent characteristic of someone saying, this is a one-woman man. And then we ended introducing the third one, and that is manage his household well. That's First Timothy 3, 4, and 5, and Titus 1, 6. We told you last week that um, if you look down in, in Titus chapter 1, in verse 6, and his children are believers, uh, some of your Bibles have a note there. Uh, mine has a note that says, also can be translated faithful. And that's a better translation of this word. It's not a requirement that all of the children of, of anybody who's a pastor, the children have to be believers, as in the children have to embrace the gospel and be Christians. That is outside of a person's control. However, the question is, does he care for and lead his family in a way that honors God, manages his household well? First Timothy 3 says, he, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Same parallel passage here. In other words, do his children respect and obey him as a natural course of life? Does, does this person who is, you are looking at as whether or not they're qualified to be a pastor, does this person have control, a biblical control of his home? Not an, an abusive control, but is this a way in which his home is out of control? Because Paul gives the reason to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own house, how will he care for God's church? And so you have this this consistent pattern that the home is a smaller picture of the church. And so if a, if a home life is not okay, then the minister's ministry life will not be okay. There's no such thing as being a good pastor but a bad husband or being a good pastor but a bad father. That's impossible. It doesn't mean, obviously, you've seen, I don't know if you noticed when we sang this morning, that was a hymn we've been working on. We do a hymn of the month and teach the kids these old hymns and did you see Prisca and Shiloh fighting while they were singing? Did you see that? Yeah, that was, I was like, okay, perfect example of what we're going to talk about tonight. You know, Shiloh's poking Prisca while they're singing about turning your eyes upon Jesus, <laughs> right? And Shiloh pokes Prisca, six-year-old, goading a four-year-old, and she slaps his hand. You know, that's just what's going on. That's just normal life, right? But the question that you need to be asking as a church to the pastors that are in your church and as to anybody who's who you're looking to recognize as a pastor of the church, whether staff or lay pastor, is to say, does this person manage their house? Is their house under control? The best way that you can boil this down is to say, is open sin being dealt with? Is sin being allowed in the home? Or is sin being dealt with in the home? Paul's reasoning, if a person can't lead his home in a way that will glorify God, how can he expect to lead his family, the family of God, if he can't lead his family at home? Again, this does not mean that children are perfect and that they're obedient in every way, obviously. 
but that the father is leading the home appropriately so that when sin comes into the home, as it always will, that sin is dealt with appropriately. It means that the father recognizes that he's not there to be his children's friend. He's there to be a parent and a father. This may mean that when the child is old enough, that the child can no longer live in the home if the child is living in open, unrepentant sin. 18, 19, an adult child living in the home in open sin is still responsible, that pastor is still responsible for that home. And I remember my, my dad sitting us down in times of struggle and saying the Bible requires that I deal with this because if I don't deal with this in your life, how can I expect to lead the church? In, uh, when Paul's writing to Timothy and to Titus, he emphasizes what this looks like. If you look down at verse 6, not open to the charge of debauchery. That's a reckless abandon about life, a lack of care. No care for consequences. I don't ma- it doesn't matter the consequences. I'm going to do whatever I want. And insubordination, a refusal to submit, wild and rebellious, a lack of all control. That, that, that those things should not characterize the home of a, of a man who's going to serve in the office of pastor. Reckless abandon, lack of care for like, lack of care for consequences, a refusing to submit to authority, wild and rebellious. So what are the implications about that? This is true about deacons as well. Is that the pastor and the deacon must remember that he is a father first. That home can disqualify. If you are not serving in the office of a pastor, then normally your home life does not disqualify you from your role. But if you're serving as a pastor, your home life can actually disqualify you. And so family work is ministry work, and the family can disqualify him from holding a biblical office. I wrote down, the family is the testing ground of theology. Good theology works itself out practically, and bad theology over a period of time is evident as well. And so you can see this by looking at a home. Let me also tell you, I grew up in a pastor's home. I'm obviously current lead, currently leading a home in which, we have a pa- in which I'm a pastor, and um, there is a sense in which a pastor's family, they live a little bit in a glass house, and... Um, we should not put pressure on pastor's children. I say this because the kids aren't in here. That are not true of any other children. Um, I have heard people say, not to my children, but I've heard people say things like, oh, I can't believe you. I can't believe you'd obey like that. You're the pastor's kid. And if I could encourage you, I know I have, I have children, so it's a little bit of a selfish request. So we have, the other pastors in our church have children as well. Um, what that does in a pastor's kid's heart is that fosters fear of man. I can't be real because I have to put on a fake face so I don't make my parents look bad. And that is very unhealthy. And so my encouragement to, would, to you would be to examine the home to see if the person is leading their home biblically. But please don't put unrealistic expectations and let all the, 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 the ministry kids that are part of our ministry, whether pastors, kids or not, let them live their life as children and, uh, and don't put undue expectations on them. Number four, not only manage his household well, but don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. 
Let's be above reproach. Look at verse um, 7 for an overseer. There's our word bishop there, an overseer, the second title. Elder, overseer, shepherd. God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. This is someone who's self-willed. Person who's not a team player. You could say this is someone who's my way or the highway. Someone who's insistent that his way is right and no one else has anything to speak into that. This type of person is abusive because he is willing to use people in order to get what he wants. He's a bully and has a strong will to manipulate people into fear rather than leading by love. An arrogant person is not qualified to be an elder because elders, as we saw this morning, are supposed to work as a team. Lone rangers in ministry should scare you to death. It means they don't want accountability and they can't work with people, and that should scare you to death. Elders should be team players. People who are arrogant use the congregation to accomplish their own desires and their own, um, their own passions, their own vision, rather than leading out of love. And so the elder must not be arrogant. By the way, we're going to take questions here in just a minute. And if you have any questions, let's jot them down. We'll take some questions if you have them. This concept of arrogancy has the idea that a person would come in and actually, rather than lead the congregation, use them as a tool. I don't know if you saw this or not, but a couple weeks ago, a pastor in New York City was robbed at gunpoint during live stream. Did you guys see that news article? Um, it was, I, was, I felt really bad for the guy until he, was, until he said that the guy, uh, the robbers came in on live stream and they stole jewelry from he and his wife, and it was over a million dollars of jewelry that they stole. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. His nickname is the Bling Bling Bishop, by the way. I think that's what we should call Ben. The Bling Bling Bishop. He says people call him this because he has expensive taste and he drives a Rolls Royce. Okay. That would be an example of someone who is using people for their own good. And that's the type of person that you want to not lead your church. Number five. By the way, he, he brought that on himself because he gave that testimony in front of the camera on the news station. And so I'm not like, judge, I am judging him. Let's move on. <laughs> Number five, don't be quick-tempered. This means inclined to get angry quickly. When I was a kid, I was, uh, and I still am like this a little bit if you get to know me, but I like to, to poke people as I did with Ben. And some people have certain buttons to push and my mom would would tell me I remember as a kid stop pushing his buttons my my older brother was quick to explode and I knew exactly what buttons to push in fact at one point I had him pinned against the cabinets in the kitchen I was probably 11 he was 13 and uh and he was very upset and I was just goading him you know and he said uh, you have robbed me of a normal childhood I said, okay we called him the fun sucker because he just sucked the fun out of everything. <laughs> he now pastors in South Carolina. <laughs> okay, this also carries the idea of uh, not being able to control your anger. Uh, perhaps you've heard the term brawler, someone who's a fighter who flares up and wants to argue and fight about everything. 
This is important because the leader of the church will often be put into situations where he must be able to calmly respond and act rather than to react. Is that in, in, in a leader, you want a pastoral staff member or a lay pastor person in spiritual leadership who can take a step back and act rather than someone who's quick to fly off the handle at every turn. Not quick tempered. Now I'm going to dip in and out of Titus and Timothy and go through these. So you'll see some of them listed here. If you have 1 Timothy 3, then you'll see them reflect, or first, uh, yeah, 1 Timothy 3, you see them reflected there as well. Not a drunkard, and I'm going to, I'm going to tie with this the positive side, and that is to be sober-minded. So you'll see not a drunkard in Titus and sober-minded in Timothy. Obviously, alcohol as it is today was a huge problem in the first century. And a person who's addicted to alcohol reveals he has a lack of self-control and a lack of discipline. Alcohol abuse is common in every culture where alcohol is present. And therefore, alcohol alcohol abuse is a problem in every culture. This qualification could be expanded today to include substance addiction across the board. A lot of times, many, uh, a lot of people single out alcohol, but the truth is it goes with the more that we see uh, cannabis being legalized across the United States, the more that we see an addiction to prescription drugs, things of that nature. I think it's important that we continue to be biblical in this and thus not single out something specific and leave others open but rather to, to offer a broad-ranging category here and just say, not, not addicted to substances like this, but rather be sober-minded. Why do you want someone who's not a drunkard, someone who's not in the throes of addiction? Because you need someone who can make logical, rational decisions. He needs the mental faculties to make decisions without the emotional instability of a lack of self-control and a lack of discipline. Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Something will control your life, and it needs to be the Holy Spirit. Number seven, not violent, but gentle. This word violent means easily irritated. Um, It means always waking up on the wrong side of the bed. That's what the word violent means. You know, there are some people where you wonder what type of person they're going to be at the office today. You know, which John am I going to get today? Am I going to get the one that had a good night last night? Sorry, John. I I shouldn't have said John. There's John Quick. I shouldn't have said John. Uh, I always try to think of a, you know, a generic name. Uh, Which Ben are we going to get today? You know, are we going to, oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> a person who is, is irritable, always on the wrong side of the bed, where, where you're not, you, you knock on the office door and you brace because you're not sure which boss you're going to get. Are you going to get the one who's, who had a good day, had a good night last night, he had a good morning, or are you going to get the one who's angry at the world? That's what this word violent means. Another word would be, uh, I believe the King James says pugnacious, which is a good word. Instead, the opposite of this is that in in Timothy, we see the opposite of not being violent. The positive would be gentleness. That a pastor needs to be known as a kind and gracious person rather than reacting in violence and being irritable. 
It needs to be someone who can act in grace and wisdom. Again, these are not absolutes. It's not as though he can never have a bad day. Praise the Lord. That's not the qualification, right? And so the consistent pattern is graciousness, kindness. Number eight, not greedy for gain, not a lover of money. I think you see this here at the end of verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Timothy said, or Paul says to Timothy, a lover of money. Money is not evil. We have to understand that. Wealth is not a sin. Some in the church have been blessed Uh, have been given, I should say, wealth is also not a sign of blessing. Some have been given wealth. Some have not been given wealth. If you are here and you've not been given wealth, I don't know this by experience, but I know this by having watched others' lives in that where there is much money, there's much problems, right? And so a person who serves as a pastor must not be greedy for gain. The love and the pursuit of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The Bible is full of warnings over and over and over again. You see warnings of pursuing money, pursuing riches. Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. They're contradictory. Because often... The pursuit of God is a pursuit of sacrifice. It's taking up your cross daily. It's giving. It's recognizing, as we said in our stewardship series, it's recognizing that everything that you have belongs to God and you are a conduit to get it to where it can be used for the gospel. And that may mean into your checking account, into your savings account, or into a ministry. That everything that you own belongs to God and you are a conduit rather than a pond, right? You're not, you're not a stagnant pool of water. Stagnant pool of resources. A love for money may drive you to do things that are illegal and unethical in order to get what you do not have. That there are things that I desire, and if I love money, and I put money as the king of my heart, then I'm willing to sacrifice ethics, righteousness, a pursuit of God in order to get that thing that is most important. This is also a warning for those who would seek to go into the ministry for the purpose of gaining money and wealth. And in 2 Corinthians, I believe, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, we did not come to you, I love this phrase, as peddlers of the gospel. It's a great, it's a great phrase. We didn't come to you as peddlers for the gospel. We didn't come to you as a door-to-door salesman selling you a product that if you have enough resources, you can gain entrance into the kingdom of God. But we came to you serving and preaching the gospel. I guess you could say it this way, the controlling influence in the life of an elder must not be money. There must be a greater influence on his life and that service for the Lord. This does not mean, first of all, that pastors should not plan well for retirement, that pastors should not save, and that pastors should not be uh, remunerated staff pastors. And, and we'll, we can talk about that later, and we have in the past, but the, 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 
The purpose of this is just to say, if you're looking at a person, remember, the church qualifies men for ministry. And, and the goal would be, the way we're praying, right? Pray forth laborers for the harvest. The prayer would be that there, there would be men in our congregation who would aspire to the office of pastor and that we could recognize from within our congregation as pastors. And when that happens, when God um, puts it on the burden of someone to be put forward as a pastor and you have the responsibility of qualifying them because you know them, one of the, one of the, the qualifications that you need to see in their life is that they are not pursuing as their primary source gain. That they're wise with their finances. The controlling influence in the life of the elder must not be money. I was talking to my dad this week. He's just stepped into a, a um, um, he, he's stepping in as a, as a interim, I was going to say intermittent, not an intermittent, interim pastor to help a church out who's struggling. And he made the comment, he says, you know, Joe, every time that I've changed jobs my whole life, I've taken a pay cut. Because he went from the business world and sold a business and then pastored a church. And then after pastoring a church, has worked for a missions organization. And every time he's, he's taken a pay cut, he said, but I don't regret any of it. And, uh, and I believe that's, that's the mindset of someone to say, you know, I, I have to take care of my family. Okay? We're not going in this and saying that I'm willing to be foolish. I'm willing to take care. I, I need to take care of my family, but my primary pursuit as a pastor must not be money. And so that is a qualification that must be true of all those seeking the office. Number nine, we'll speed up a little bit here. Hospitable. Does the pastor that's seeking to be qualified open his home to others in order to serve them and care for them? Or is he greedy with his resources and time? An elder's life must be open to those that he ministers to. There must be a welcoming heart of he and his family. All throughout Scripture, hospitality is seen as a very important biblical virtue that reflects God's heart. And so anyone who aspires to the office of a pastor, their life must be open to those that they minister to. That doesn't mean that, that, that there's no privacy in the life of a pastor, right? It just means that their life has to be open there's a difference between privacy and secrecy. Those are two very different things, okay? And maybe that's a, a, a conversation for another day if that, um, if that piques your interest. But there's a difference between privacy and secrecy. And for those who are going to be shepherds in the local church, in order for the church to be able to even qualify them, their life has to have a certain openness and, a hus- and they have to be hospitable to the sheep that God's asked them to lead. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say it this way, a shepherd needs to smell like sheep. And I think that's, that's very applicable, and that would, that would go into this, this realm of hospitality. He must be a lover of good. Verse 8, that means that he needs to pursue and love righteousness and things that are characterized as good. He needs to be self-controlled and disciplined. This also goes with the not a drunkard. 
This is the evidence of a disciplined life. If you notice in people's life, you start paying attention. Self-discipline in one area normally bleeds over to discipline in other areas. And a lack of discipline in some areas bleeds over into a lack of discipline in other areas. Self-controlled or disciplined. It also is the, this is interesting that this word kind of carries with it uh, the, the connotation of being wise and discerning. In other words, you, you need to qualify men who know the difference between good, better, and best. Good isn't good enough. Good, better, and best. There should be an absence of laziness. So also, as self-control, the implication is that there's a pattern of a person setting aside childish behavior. I hope you would be concerned if you found out that I played Xbox for an hour and a half every night. I hope that would concern you. It doesn't concern an entire generation, and that is concerning, right? is that there has to be a pattern of setting aside childish behavior. That doesn't mean that you, you, know, you can't have fun. It just means a consistent pattern in the life of setting aside childish behavior in order to be self-controlled, in order to be disciplined, in order to be a shepherd. Upright. Verse 8. In the most basic form, it just means righteous. His character and conduct should be made up of that which is righteous. Holy, wholeheartedly devoted to the word of God and his spiritual pursuit of God. There should not be an area in the pastor's life, in the elder's life, where he is not allowing God to be a part, fully set aside to God and his work. In other words, pastoring is not a job. It is a calling from the congregation I have a staff position at this church, but having a staff position does not make me a pastor because Heather is also on staff, right? And so are so many teachers. You know, we have, I think, somewhere, Matt can correct me, I think we have somewhere between 25 and 30 staff members from custodians to teachers to administrative to, to secretaries and all this stuff. Being on staff does not make somebody a pastor because you can have churches that can't pay a pastor, being a pastor means that, that, that a man has been separated by the congregation, called to shepherd the congregation. And so a person who sees pastoring as a job that he can clock in and clock out of is not someone who's set apart wholeheartedly to shepherding. If you have a family emergency, if someone passes away in your home, if you've been in a car accident, if there's something that happens in your family late at night, 11 o'clock at night, and you say, I need my pastor to help me shepherd through this, I hope you would feel the freedom to call me. Now, if your sports team lost in overtime, okay, maybe that wouldn't qualify, right? And not just me, Sean, Ben. The, the, the pastors are here to shepherd you in your time of need and to bring spiritual truth to bear in your life. I want to go through two more qualifications and we'll talk about the differences between deacons and elders. Not a recent convert. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That just means that a person should not be recently saved. Uh, Paul gives the reason to Timothy that he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. A person who does not have the spiritual maturity to understand that the position of spiritual authority is actually a position of service should not be serving in that area. Because a recent convert would lord the position over the congregation rather than serving. What classifies a recent convert? One year? Five years? 
10 years, it's up to the church. It's up to the church to qualify. This also may may mean that a person, before stepping out into the, the position of elder in a church, may need to be in a healthy church first. So there may be somebody who transitions in from a church, a non-gospel preaching church, or perhaps a very unhealthy church environment. And we may want them to sit in a healthy, expository, Bible-preaching church for a while before pursuing the office of a pastor. That would also fall under this. And then one that's often not thought of, lastly, well thought of by outsiders. This is one you don't hear of talked about a lot. Well thought of by outsiders. 1 Timothy 3.7 Does he generally have a good reputation with those who are outside the church? Does he, with, with unbelievers in the, in the area, is he known as a person who would make sense that he'd be a pastor? Sometimes people outside the church gathering have a better read on a person's character than those inside the church. We can't elevate people inside the church who those outside the church would go you're a pastor where good to know because i'll never go there you know i've jokingly told becky that um when we go out to eat i'll leave a really bad tip and then leave an invitation to a different church you know (laughs) i would never do that right never do that it's a joke it's a bad joke (laughs) um but, but that's what we're talking about, this idea that you don't want somebody in leadership in your church that people who are outside the church, unbelievers, and other Christians and other congregations are going, whoa, I can't believe you would put that person in leadership. Well thought of by outsiders. Now, let's talk about the difference between pastors and deacons. And it's only one qualification. It's found at the end of verse 9, but it's found in a little phrase in 1 Timothy 3. It's explained in Titus 1.9, and it's the phrase, able to teach or apt to teach. In order to be considered as, as an elder, a bishop, uh, uh, an overseer, a pastor, whatever you want to call it, in order for someone to be considered for that position, they must be apt to teach. Now, this doesn't mean that this person has to preach every Sunday morning. It doesn't mean they need to be the most dynamic preacher you've ever heard. But they need to be able to teach the Bible accurately and clearly to other people. You could ask this question. Do I have a better understanding about the Bible after I have, go to this person with a question? I have a question about this Bible passage. I go to this person and his answer, I have no idea what he said. And in fact, i got to go ask somebody else because he thoroughly confused me. Or is this person able to clearly explain Scripture? Is he able to teach others, whether through preaching, teaching, leading a small group, one-on-one conversation? Apt to teach means that he can clearly understand Scripture. He has a grasp of Scripture in order to do two things. Look at verse 9. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That means he needs to be able to teach the Bible well, to explain and apply scripture. And secondly, rebuke those who contradict it. Teaching what the Bible says and rebuking false teachers. That's the role of the pastor. Teaching the scripture and rebuking false teachers. And in and, and my role here in the last five years, I've had to do both at community. And it's very, very important that the leadership of the church 
must do that. The qualification of the deacon found in 1 Timothy 3 is that he simply needs to, simply, still a big deal, he needs to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You could say it this way. Elders are, are, are tasked with preaching, teaching, leading with the word. Deacons are tasked with serving with the word. Deacons are not um, pictured in Scripture in any way as, as exerting authority in the church. That's given to the group of pastors. Deacons are charged with serving because deacons don't have to be apt to teach. And think of it this way. This is what I want to end on. Think of it this way. How would your church be different if you were led by a group of men who didn't clearly understand the Bible and could teach it clearly than if they did clearly understand the Bible and could teach it clearly? Those are two very different paths, right? Now, this does not mean that a deacon shouldn't be able to teach the Bible. A deacon could be apt to teach, and that would be awesome. In fact, you see Stephen, one of the seven, who would eventually, that, that track would go down. We call them pre-deacons. He stands up to preach, and he preaches, and he's the first martyr. Philip, also one of the seven, able to preach. But a deacon does not have to be able to, to clearly teach the Scripture. They need to be able to model a, a biblical, consistent Christian life. And then they have the opportunity to serve in the church. But those who lead the church must, 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 must be able to teach. And the reason is, is because the church has to fall under the authority of Scripture. And if you have someone leading the church who doesn't have the ability to clearly understand Scripture and teach it, you end up with someone who's trying to do their best, but in leading the church, they're not bringing the church under biblical authority. Inevitably, they're bringing it under their own authority. And so that's why it's imperative, number one, that pastors, elders, overseers must be qualified as apt to teach. And secondly, that the leadership of the church and the organization of the church falls under that group of people. Because in that way, you have guaranteed that those leading the church can clearly communicate Scripture, clearly study Scripture, clearly teach Scripture, both to teach sound doctrine and refuse false teaching. That's why when, we, when, we, when, we, um, when I came and in, in, was in my candidation process, I preached, I taught. When we candidated Ben as a pastor to be called out as your shepherd, Ben preached that Sunday so that we could clearly, and we've sat under Ben's teaching, and you've been blessed, and you've received incredible spiritual benefit from Ben's preaching and teaching, and we had Sean preach when he candidated as a pastor, so you could receive the blessing and see what kind of normal pattern, and you will be blessed by Sean's preaching and teaching, and in every way, by the shepherds that are called out from this congregation, they need to be men who can clearly understand, communicate the teachings of Scripture both to teach sound doctrine and refute false teaching. Does that make sense? Okay, that's why this is so important, is because a lot of times people run to competence first rather than character. And a person who's going to lead the church and serve the church, both pastor and deacon, must first be a biblically charactered person. Competence can be taught. Character can only be taught by God. That is a heart issue. And so as we qualify men, both for deacons and pastors, we're going to be doing deacon nominations here in the next month as we look forward to October. 
that you should be looking around the church and you should be saying, okay, what, what men meet these qualifications of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3? And we will print out a list of what these are and give them to you so you can read through them in preparation for that. Okay, questions. Any questions on that? We're going to talk about just specifically deacons next week as we walk you through from our leadership retreat in January, the document that we've produced that's going to govern um, in detail kind of how the deacons serve in the church, which we uh, talked about in our deacons meeting last week. I think, you'll, I think it'll be really clarifying, and I think you'll really love that. Uh, we'll do that next week. Any questions on qualifications or anything that we've been over? Anything that I said that maybe brought questions to your mind about this concept or topic? Clear as mud. Great. By the way, I would never leave a bad tip somewhere. I would never do that. That was totally a joke. Uh, just as an illustration. But Okay. Let's pray. And, uh, and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given to us to look at your word. I do pray that you'd be stirring in the hearts of men in our church to aspire to these qualifications, that there's nothing, that there's nothing uh, like superhero-wise in regards to these, that these qualifications, but that they're just unremarkable other than a consistent Christian life. I pray that you would raise up men from our congregation who are apt to teach, who would be willing to serve as pastors in our church. Maybe even some who don't have a need to come on staff because of either retirement scenario or perhaps a, a, a good job, but have a desire to, to shepherd in the margins of their life, who, who don't need to be on staff, but have a desire to step in and to shepherd and to lead. I pray that you would raise up men in our church who, would, who we could send out as church planters, raise up families in our church that we could send to the mission field and that we would aspire to these qualifications. You would give us wisdom in the future as we look through these qualifications of pastors and deacons, even in the coming months as we choose the servants that you would have for us to meet the physical needs of the congregation for the coming year, that you would give great wisdom in the nomination process and the selecting process and also in the appointing process for that. You give our church grace and then you would help us to continue to grow in our walk with you in every way. Your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.